0: just uh, four things, I think, in in heaven's paradise. That's the theme tonight, heaven's paradise, and I want to point out four things about it. We're going to see first in verses 1 and 2 that we will live from the Lamb. In verse 3, we will serve the Lamb. In verse 4, we will behold the Lamb, and in verse 5, we shall reign with the Lamb. Now, obviously, the reoccurring word there or theme is the Lamb. Because we're going to see that Christ is at the center of the new heaven and earth. It is, as Rutherford said, Emmanuel's land. Revelation 22, 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month the leaves of the tree before the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Well, as I mentioned last week, chapters 21 and 22 form one of the most beautiful descriptions of heaven in the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. Chapter 21 describes heaven as the new heaven and earth. And then the last half of the chapter talks about the new Jerusalem that will be in that new heaven and earth. And then chapter 22 in the first five verses describe heaven as a new paradise. And thus, perhaps we can start by this application, that the scriptures actually end where they begin. If you remember, the Bible begins in Genesis 2 and 3. Well, it begins in chapter 1 with creation, and then chapter 2 with paradise, chapter 3, the fall. But if you notice, there's a new creation here in chapter 21. There's a new paradise in chapter 22, but there's no curse. In other words, the scriptures could be summarized as paradise lost, that's Genesis, and paradise recovered, that's Revelation. So the first part of Genesis has a paradise in it, though it's lost. Adam loses it because of his disobedience. And, and yet, here at the end of the Bible, in chapter 22 of Revelation, there's another paradise, and that one's gained by the obedience of the last Adam. So Adam the first loses his paradise. Adam the last earns his paradise. And we as his people share in that reward. So the Bible starts with a paradise. It ends with a paradise. Paradise lost and paradise found. But what's very important to keep in mind. The paradise at the end of the Bible is far superior than the paradise in the beginning of the Bible. Or put another way, paradise found supersedes paradise lost. And that's a very important point. Because it's evident, isn't it, as I read these five verses, that John has in mind paradise first. He's using the imagery. Almost every verse of this passage uh, speaks about something that was found in the original paradise. And yet, everything in this last paradise is far superior to the first. Joe Beek, put it this way. It's interesting that the Bible ends where it begins. The opening chapters of Genesis gives the account of the first creation. The closing chapters of, of Revelation describe God's creation of the new heaven and new earth. Genesis tells about paradise lost. Revelation tells about paradise regained. So, there's a paradise in Genesis 2. This is perhaps an easy way to remember it. There's a paradise in Genesis 2, and there's a paradise in Revelation 22. And just as 22 is larger than 2, the paradise in Revelation super exceeds that of Genesis. It's way better. It's way bigger. But bigger isn't always better. In this case, it's bigger and better. All right? And there's four things about this new paradise, this heavenly paradise, let's call it that, that I want to point out. And the first is in verses 1 and 2, and that is, we will live from the Lamb. Notice how it's put. In verses 1 and 2, we find uh, mention made of the water of life, verse 1, and the tree of life, verse 2. Now, obviously, brethren, If we were to take the time and go back to Genesis 2, you would find there was a river in paradise and there was a tree of life in paradise. And so it's rather evident John is describing heaven with imagery taken from the first paradise. The river or the waters, uh, perhaps I can put it like this, the waters and the tree of life, which yields Its fruit in every month has leaves that bring healing to the nations. This simply means that those in this paradise will be multi-ethnic. Multi-ethnic. There's going to be many nations in this new paradise. And that's one reason why it's a better paradise. The first paradise had a man and a woman in it. And the last or final paradise is going to be made up of many nations. Many tribes, many tongues, many nations. And so people don't lose their nationality in heaven. They're glorified creatures who are taken from every tribe and nation. But the main point of verses 1 and 2 is the source of the river and thus the tree. Because if you notice... The river is the source of the tree's blessing. Verse at the end of 1. Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then in verse 2 it speaks about in the middle of its street. There's a river going down the street. Right? That's the imagery here. Down these streets of gold. All figurative language. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river. Was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits. So even here we find again that the imagery really isn't so much of one tree, but many trees. In fact, it even goes on to say that each tree yielding its fruit every month. So in every way, brethren, the scriptures want to underscore the superior nature of this paradise over the original paradise. How many trees of life were in The original paradise. Uno. How many trees of life are in this paradise? There's multiple trees. In other words, there's an abundance of life that we will enjoy for all eternity. But again, the point being is the source of this life is the throne, the end of verse 1, the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, there's an old hymn that talks about... uh, I didn't look for it. It's not in our hymn book, but it talks about the the river of life flowing by the throne. Well, technically, it's not so much that the river of life flows by, but the river of life flows from the throne of God. And that's a big difference. The point being is this is life that's mediated to us. This is what it all means right here. This is life that's mediated to us from God through Christ. That's what this means. brother. how do we receive life? How do we receive spiritual life as Christians? We receive it from God, but we receive it from God through Christ. And how is it that we will enjoy this life for all eternity in abundance? We will receive it from God through Christ. Just for example, think of... This verse in 1 John 5 11. God has given us eternal life. Okay, this life comes from the throne of God. But notice what it goes on to say, and this life is in his son. So, all of the life that God has intended to give to his people from the beginning of their conversion for all eternity has been deposited in Christ. Brother, this isn't a small trickle, this is an abundance of life. And that's and that's communicated both in the fact that there's that there's this massive river that flows down the streets, and then there's these trees of life that yield their fruit every month. These most fruits or, or most fruit trees don't yield their fruit. I don't think there's any fruit tree that yields their fruit yearly. Possibly, but these trees always bear fruit. That's the idea, brethren. There's always an abundance of fruit. There's always an abundance of life. And let me just tap back into Rutherford. If you can remember this this phrase in verse 3, we say, Oh Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand and glory glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land so we've drunk from remember Jesus said if anyone's thirsty let him come unto me and drink we've already drunk of this water we've already eaten of the tree of life brethren. remember the phrase eternal life in the Bible we translate it that way eternal life but it's, it's more literally life eternal So I think we oftentimes misunderstand that. We think of eternal life as something that we're going to get. No, it's something that we have and that we're already experiencing. We're just going to get the whole of it in the fullest sense in heaven. But we're already, to use the language or the imagery of this text, we're already drinking from the river. We are already eating from the tree. But when we get to heaven, we're going to have that in perfection. And in abundance. And I do think it's also interesting, if you just think about this, that the tree of life, it's, it brings to mind wood, right? And that's what Jesus purchased this life upon, was the tree, the accursed tree, the cross in which he bore our sins and purchased for us life that's eternal, So we find that Christ will remain the source of our spiritual life for all eternity. God will always and he will only deal with us through a mediator throughout all eternity. We will always have an abundance of life, an abundance of water, an abundance of fruit from Christ. And that's why I've called this first point, we will live from the lamb. William Hendrickson said, by means of the cross, Christ merited eternal life for us, which is symbolized in the tree of life. All right, so we will live from the lamb. Secondly, we will serve the lamb. Verse three, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. Now, you know that this word serve, I didn't check it, but some of your translations may have worship. It's uh, it's a word that can mean worship. It's a word that's typically associated with the priestly service of the Old Testament. The priests served God in the temple. They were his servants. And here the imagery is applied to us. We're we're, we're kings in verse 5, by the way. Remember, Jesus made us uh, Revelation one five, priests and kings unto his God. Well, here we are, priests and kings. We're priests, verse three, and we're kings, verse five. But the imagery does switch a little bit, and this is where it might be a little bit difficult. Verses three to five switches imagery and describes heaven in terms of a temple and God's people as priests. Now, you may not know this, and if you don't, you will now. There's every reason, and I'm going to point out some of them here in a moment, to view original the original paradise in Genesis 2 as a temple. And in fact, Adam was a priest and a king. And he was to serve God in that temple, in that garden temple. Because we're going to see here, That the the paradise recovered is described in terms of what? A garden temple, brethren. Do you know what the Garden of Eden was? It was the temple before the temple. Where did God specially meet with his people in the Old Testament? In the temple. And where did he specially meet with Adam? In the garden. Remember, the whole earth, the original creation, wasn't garden. He was banished from the garden, he was kicked out of the temple. He proved to be an unfaithful priest and king, and God banished him for his sin and us in him. And then the second man, or the last Adam, he came and did what the first could have, but didn't. And thus he's given us access back into the garden. He's given us access back into the temple. And First 5, for example, picks up on this, uh, imagery of a temple in the garden. Uh, there shall be no, no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light. Remember, the, the priests served God in the two rooms. The, the regular priest served God in that first larger room in the temple and the high priest served God in the, in the smaller room, the Holy of Holies, only once a year. But the priest served God every day in that first larger room, the holy place. And there was a lamp, remember? There was that seven-pronged lamp or candlestick. And it had to always be lit. And it was always burning. Why? Because it was by the light of the lamp that the priest served God. But listen to this. This temple doesn't need a lamp. It doesn't need the sun doesn't need a light. You know why? Because God in Christ is going to illuminate it. Brethren, this is... uh, Okay, let's describe it this way. I've already described this passage a number of ways. I think I prefer this way. This passage describes heaven as a garden temple. A garden temple. It's the garden of Eden and the temple, the two imageries brought together. And you find that all over the place, don't you? There's the city that was described in the last chapter. Remember, there's no temple in it. 21 verse 22, because God, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And that's why the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb illuminate the priests as they serve God day and night in the temple. That just means this. We worship Him and we worship Him without fault we worship him without sin we worship him with all of our heart mind soul and strength we love him with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourself perfectly and perpetually now that's very unlike today isn't it we can't even we it's hard for us to get up and, and to go come to prayer meeting. for various reasons maybe we're sick or maybe we're lazy The brethren will be neither. (laughs) There's no curse. Listen, verse 3, and there shall be no more curse there. There won't be any sickness. There won't be any laziness. There won't be any indifference. And we're not going to come and worship God with our mind distracted and thinking about yesterday or tomorrow. But we're going to serve him with all of our hearts and with all of our souls for all eternity. There's going to be no coffin in heaven. No coughing in this garden temple. Now that brings me then thirdly to verse 4. We will behold the Lamb. And this, of course, was the text that Rutherford had for his text as a basis of his hymn. Do you remember what uh, several different places he he makes mention of this? Verse 2, the king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. The king is there in his beauty without a veil he's seen. The bride eyes, not her garment, verse 4, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth. But on his pierced hand, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's Lamb. And so the text says that we're going to see the face of our beloved. That's exactly what verse 4 says. They shall see his face. That means Christ's face, the Lamb's face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. Now, the fact that, the, that his name will be on our foreheads means that we're going to bear his image and we're going to know his love, that we're his. It's really not only it underscores uh, likeness, we're going to bear his image, but we're also going to know of our acceptance with him. It's really the idea of ownership. Uh, One man said, The imprint of the divine name on the foreheads of the saints signifies that as residents of the New Jerusalem, they belong to God. They bear his image and likeness and are citizens of his kingdom. I think that's an excellent way to explain this mark, this uh, name, his name that's on our foreheads. But what does it mean that we shall see his face? Well, most of you, I think, are aware of the phrase the beatific vision, the blessed sight. Perhaps I can put it in a more contemporary um, way. The beatific vision, the blessed sight. And that's really taken from uh, this text, but also from Matthew 5, 8. Do you remember Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the beatific vision. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the beatific vision really has to be understood in two closely related ways. We will see God, we will see God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. We will see God with the eyes of our souls, right? Because you can't see God, who's the spirit with your physical eyes that's not possible God is the spirit so we'll never see God in that sense we will see him in that we will know him perfectly and increasingly because if you, if you look again at verse 5 there shall be no night there they need no lamp no light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light that speaks of what? continual ongoing increasing illumination so we're going we're gonna to know him without fault. But then he's going to, as it were, stretch our hearts so that we can incre- increasingly know him for all eternity. So when it says that we're going to see God in Matthew 5, 8, it means, first of all, we're going to see God with the eyes of our soul. We, we can see God now with the eyes of our soul, Right? We we see we, we learn about God on the pages of Scripture. We have a knowledge of God communicated to us by the Spirit through the Scriptures that enables us to see God in that qualified sense. Now, we're never going to know God exhaustively, right? We're never going to fully comprehend God. Nobody knows God in that way, only God. But we're going to know Him without fault. We're going to know Him perfectly. And we're going to know Him increasingly in our heart. But brethren, this... This element of the beatific vision in verse 4 goes beyond that. And it talks about a corporal, a physical, a physical sight of the glorified God-man with our glorified eyes. And this was, if you remember, the hope of Job, who said that he will see his Redeemer with his own very eyes. That's what he said in Job 19. He believed that his his Redeemer lives and that he was going to come back to the earth. And when he did, he was going to raise Job's dead body from the ground. And he was going to glorify that body. And he was going to enable Job to see God or to know God with the eyes of his soul in perfection. But also to behold his bodily glorified Savior with his glorified eyes. Brother, that is a tremendous thought to think. We're going to behold our beloved Savior with our glorified eyes. Now, our body and souls, while we distinguish them, they make up one person. And so, as we see our beloved Savior with our physical eyes, we will see Him more clearly with the eyes of our soul. And through him as our mediator, as he illuminates us in this blessed temple, this garden temple, we will come to know God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, more clearly and increasingly for all eternity. That's the beatific vision. Now there's a lot that can and should be said about the beatific vision. And I want to pause and just make a few applications before we go on to our fourth point. But before I do that... Let me give you a quotation from the old Puritan Thomas Watson. The sight of God in glory, listen, the sight of glory, this is taken from his sermons on the Beatitudes. This is one of the three sermons he preached on verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He talks in the first two sermons on what is it to have a pure heart. And then in the third sermon he talks about what is it to see God. And he says, the sight of God in glory is first spiritual. Spiritual. We shall see him with the eyes of our mind. But secondly, it's partly physical. That is, we shall with bodily eyes behold Jesus Christ, through whom the glory of God, his wisdom, holiness, and mercy, shall shine forth to our souls. So there's two dimensions or elements to the beatific vision. There's a spiritual and there's a physical and they necessarily relate one to another. All right, two things about the beatific vision before we come to our final point in verse 5. First, the beatific vision, that is that we're going to see God with the eyes of our soul, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with the eyes of our glorified humanity, we're going to see the God-man physically. The beatific vision is a powerful motive To holiness. Listen to these words. You'll be familiar with them. 1 John 3, 2. When he is revealed, that is when he comes back, when Christ, the God-man, the glorified God-man, comes back, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now watch how John puts that. Remember, John who wrote that is the same John who's writing this. And he puts it like this, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. In other words, when we see him, it's going to have a powerful impact upon our hearts. Now watch it. I just said for all eternity, though we're going to be perfect when we go to heaven or we're going to be in a perfect glorified state in the new heaven and the new earth. But when we behold him, even there in our glorified, perfected state, we're still. Brother, you can't look upon Christ and not be altered for the better. We're going to be changed from a degree of glory for all eternity in the new heaven and earth. As the God man illuminates our hearts and minds, as we look at him, we're going to become like him. All right. He says we'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. In other words, you can't see him as he is and stay the same. And that's going to happen when he comes back and we see him, we're going to be glorified. And then as we increasingly see him for all eternity, we're going to be increasingly and um, without measure formed and shaped into that blessed and beautiful imagery or image. But then the verse goes on and says this in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope that is, everyone who has the hope of seeing him and being like him, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he's pure. In other words, it has a present power in the heart and in the soul now. Do you remember what Paul, how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3.16? He says, as we are beholding him, We are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Brethren, how is it that Christians, this is somewhat of a simple answer. It's more complex, but there's there's one sense in which we could simplify it this way. How are Christians made holy? They look to Christ. They look to Christ. They look to Christ, and that convicts their hearts. They look to Christ and that motivates them. They look to Christ and that encourages them. They look to Christ and they see the pattern in which they're to follow, brother. And they You can't be made holy and not look to Christ. Yeah, you have to work. Yeah, you have to put away your sin. Yeah, you have to do all the other things that you know you have to do. But all of that comes from looking to Him. Where do you get the motivation? Where do you get the strength? Where do you get the stamina? Where do you get the encouragement? Where do you get all that from, brother? And you get it from, from the one who's described as the source of our life in verses 1 and 2. He's the source of the water of life. He's the source of the tree of life. We get all of that grace, all of that strength, all of that encouragement from Him. But secondly, the beatific vision is a powerful motive to endurance. The fact that we shall see Him gives us reason to keep going. If somebody left you and you're waiting for them, They've been gone a long time, but you know they're coming back. They promised you. That gives you incentive to keep moving. If a husband had to go off to war and left his wife back with the children, and she doesn't know exactly when he's coming, but she knows he's coming. She's going to keep herself ready. She's going to keep the house ready. She's going to be looking out the window, anticipating the face of her beloved. Brother, when we're thinking like that, when we're thinking like that, that our beloved is going to come back and we are going to see him face to face. That not only motivates us to keep the house clean, but it enables us to endure through all manner of hardship and tribulation. Brother, and it's a, again, I, I just marvel at how Rutherford has it so beautifully put in his hymn. Um, verse two, the king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. Listen to this it were a well-spent journey those seven deaths lay between. In other words, it's been a lot of hardship. And, and back in the 17th century, they knew hardship, brother, that we don't know. He, says that, he said it would have been a well-spent journey those seven deaths laid between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Listen to this old hymn. It will be worth it. It it, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will cease. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. brother. the beatific vision doesn't only motivate us to keep our house clean, but it also keeps us motivated to look out the window, not to give up and to wait for our beloved. And now that brings me to verse five. We will reign with the lamb and they shall reign forever and ever. That is we, that's the, the they is us. We, we, God's people, will reign forever and ever. Well, remember, we're, we, we were described back in chapter 1-5 as priests and kings. And we've seen that we're described as priests here in this garden temple. And we're also described as kings. Now, this phrase, as I've already said earlier, actually returns us to the original paradise. And to the fact that Adam was created as a king to rule and subdue the earth. Brother, there's so much good biblical theology. That's what it's called, biblical theology. As it kind of stands over the Bible and gives you the big picture. This is a great text for biblical theology, by the way, because it takes Genesis 2 and Revelation 22 and it kind of puts them together or it contrasts them, doesn't it? Brother, you could take this, just take these five verses and you got the whole Bible. Genesis 2, paradise lost. Revelation 22, paradise lost. Found, but a better one. Let me show you this. Back up very quickly to Hebrews and look at chapter 2. Now he's speaking still of Jesus being better than the angels, right? Remember from last week. Uh, He didn't put the world to come, verse 5, in subjection to angels. But he put the world to come in subjection to Christ, the Lamb. And that's what he says in verse 6. But one testified in a certain place saying. Now what he's going to do is he's going to quote from Psalm 8, 4 to 6. Now if you go back and read Psalm 8, 4 to 6, it's, it originally referred to Adam. Okay? These words originally um, described Adam's relation to creation the first. But watch how the author to the Hebrews applies it to Adam the last and creation the second. Alright? Look. Verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him. Watch how the imagery uh, uh, speaks of royalty and and and, and 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 kingliness. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that was true of Adam the first, But Adam, because of his sin, lost that in part. As the image of God, he still was to subdue. Remember, he was to subdue the earth and rule it. And rule it as what? As a king. Adam was a priestly king in a garden temple. But he forfeited because of his sin, and we in him... And yet, blessed be God, Adam, the last. And, and that's why the, the, the whole context of Hebrews 2 is how Jesus, why Jesus is better than the angels. He's not talking about Adam here. He's talking about Adam the last. He's talking about Jesus. So here's the point. Christ is the king. He's the one who did what Adam did not do. And because we're in union with him as his bride. Remember, go back, brethren, to the last chapter. How, how does uh, John put it in Revelation 21, verse 9? Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Do you know why it is that we sit on thrones, brethren, in Revelation 22, 5? Because we're married to the king. You marry a king, young lady, and you become a queen. It's just that simple. And we're queens. We're his queen that Or we're kings, we're royalty in him. We share his throne, we share his glory, we share his kingdom. Brother, this is what verse 5 says. (coughs) And so the the whole passage, Revelation 22-5, harkens back to the imagery of the first paradise in Genesis, a garden temple. As I said, the garden of Eden was a temple before the temple. It was a place where God uniquely met with man. Now, let me close in the few minutes that I have with one observation. But I want to give you the observation. I want to give you a quotation from Barcellus. And then I want to expand on the uh, 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 suggest a threefold expansion on the obligation or on the observation. All right, here's the observation Paradise regained will be better than paradise lost. All right? I've said that many times tonight. Paradise regained will be better than paradise lost. Or Revelation 22, Revelation 22 describes a greater garden or paradise than Genesis 2. Okay? That's my premise, my observation. Now let me give you the quotation and then let me quickly expand on it. Richard Barcellus put it this way. And by the way, I know some of you know this book. Oh, did I not bring it? I got extra copies too, so I can actually give you a copy. But it's uh, better than the beginning, creation in biblical perspective. You can you can get it from the title, can't you? Better than the beginning. The end is better than the beginning. Revelation twenty-two is better than Genesis two. That's the whole premise of this book. And let me give you a quotation from it. He said this, Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, then was rewarded for his obedience by being raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. He will come again. He will transform the bodies of believers into bodies like his, and he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. In that place, he will be the center of attention. That eternal place is better than the Garden of Eden and Israel's promised land. Indeed, it may be called Emmanuel's land because Emmanuel means God with us. That's what it means, God among us. All right, let me close by suggesting a threefold reason why paradise regained is better than paradise lost. One, saints in paradise regained in heaven, saints in heaven, will have a better standing than Adam had in his paradise. If you remember, Adam was created, I told you this last week, in a changeable condition. He was perfect, he was sinless, but he was able to sin. And we know he was able to sin simply because he sinned. And so Adam's standing was less secure than our standing, not only in heaven, brethren, but because we're in Christ right now by faith, there's a sense of which our standing as Christians, even though we're in the wilderness of this world, is more secure than Adam's was in his paradise. Now stop and think about it. There's Adam, created in a perfect world. And here we are in a very imperfect world. That was before the curse. Now this is after the curse. We're living post-curse. And yet we're in a better, we're in a more secure standing or status than Adam was. Because Adam was created in uh, in a mutable condition. And we are in an immutable condition. An unchangeable condition. Secondly, saints in heaven will have a better motivation a better motivation for obedience than Adam had in his original paradise. Stop and think about it. Why did Adam worship or obey God? But because God created him. Creation was a very legitimate and powerful and proper incentive for Adam to obey God. Adam, I made you obey me, period. But why is it that we will worship? Why is it that we obey God now? But why is it that we will worship God for all eternity in paradise restored? Not only for creation, because God created us, but because of redemption, brethren. Do you remember that in the book of Revelation? Remember what the saints are right now praising God for? They're praising God for creation. But specifically, notice chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Brother, these are the nations that have been healed by the very leaves of the trees of life. And look at verse 10. And you've made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. What earth is it talking about? The new heavens and earth, brethren. And then down in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. See, we're we're worshiping the lamb, brethren. That's why the lamb is all through Revelation 21 and 2. Seven times the word lamb is found in Revelation 21 and 2. Why is that? Why is there so much lamb, if I can put it like that without being disrespectful, in heaven? But because we're going to worship God not only because of creation, but because of redemption. And that's something Adam couldn't do in original paradise. But it's what we can do in paradise recovered. Listen to Boston. While the saints walk in their white robes it's of heaven, and remember their natively filthy and black garments. Isn't that what we, re- we read there? five nine. You've redeemed us. To God by your blood. He says, while the saints walk in their white robes and remember their natively filthy and black garments, it will raise their praises, it will raise their praises a note higher than innocent Adam in paradise. Go back to paradise before Adam fell and he's praising God in his temple. In his garden temple as a priestly king. And he's thanking God for creation in all of its glory. And brother, we'll do that too. But we can do more than that. But he was not able to sing pre-fall, worthy is the lamb. Thirdly, saints will have a better relationship in heaven. And here I'm talking about the intimacy that we'll have with God. Christians will have a close relationship with God because we have, by faith, union with the God-man. Now, brethren, just stop and think for a second. God came to earth as a man. He assumed to his divine nature a human nature in one person, and we are joined to that. Adam didn't know anything about that. Oh, Adam was a son. We were told that in the New Testament, actually. Adam was a son. He knew God's love by way of creation. But he didn't know God's love by way of redemption, mediated to him by the God-man. Perhaps we can say God came closer to man in Christ than he did in creation. God came closer to Christ or to man in Christ than creation. Boston said innocent Adam would have lived forever in heaven as the friend of God. But the saints shall live there as members of Christ. They shall, listen to how he puts this, it's a little archaic. They shall be more nearly allied, nearly allied to the Son of God. That means connected. They'll they'll be more nearly connected or related, allied, to the Son of God than Adam would have ever been. Brethren, there's a reason why God chose to have his redemption work out the way he did. Don't get me confused. This is all plan A. It was always purposed to be this way. It was always purposed from eternity that Adam first would fail and God would send his son as Adam the last who would succeed. Why? So that God would get more glory. That God would be glorified for all of his attributes that can only be glorified because of redemption. And so, paradise regained, brethren, will be better than paradise lost. Well, let's stand and sing the doxology, then we'll come to our prayer time. Mike, can you leave?